0: I can't get you gone, turn the bar, yeah, upside down, just looking for something that does it, I give them all my money, ain't nobody selling nothing you prove, something stronger than I'm used to. everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. A few trigger warnings for today. um, Psychological abuse, toxic relationships, sexual assault, torture. I know judging by the title, you probably wouldn't be expecting that, but uh, we get into some stuff today, so y'all should just know about that. Also, the regular warning. I am not a professional. Maybe one day I will be, but today is not that day. Do not take anything I say as gospel. Please seek professional help if you think you need it. Alright, so last winter I took a forensic psychology class and it was really interesting. I also took quite a few law classes in my undergrad, but this particular forensics class, uh, it was basically a cross between psychology and law. So in this class, we talked about all kinds of stuff, Um, interrogation techniques, eyewitness testimonies, deception detection, uh, homicidal offenders, juries, and different laws used in special circumstances in court like um, people not criminally being held responsible aka the insanity plea. We also learned about profiling, psychopathy, risk assessment, sexual offenders, young offenders, and child witnesses. And we also learned about false memories and false confessions, and that is what this episode is going to be based on. Spoiler alert, your memories are kind of a lie, or I guess I should say there's a lot of assumptions. Also, just a side note, if anyone is interested in any of the topics that I just listed off um, from this forensics class, uh, just let me know and I can talk about some of those other topics as well. So what are false confessions? Um, Basically, a false confession is when an individual confesses to a crime that they did not commit or they exaggerate their involvement in a crime they did commit. And this is different from disputed or retracted confessions. Retracted confessions are confessions that the confessor later declares to be false. It may or may not have been false uh, or a false confession to begin with. And a disputed confession is a confession that is later disputed at trial, so they take it back while they're on the stand. It's not necessarily false. Um, They could have decided not to agree to it or think- or say that it's true for a number of different reasons. So, how often do people falsely confess? Um, Well, there was a study done from 1971 to 2002, and there was 125 recorded cases. 93% Ninety-three percent of them were by males. Eighty-one percent occurred in murder cases. Thirty percent of the cases involved multiple false confessions for several um, from several innocent suspects. Sixty-three percent of those people were younger than twenty-five years old. So there is a project of sorts in the U.S. It's called the Innocence Project, and it was created to get people out of jail who were falsely accused or they falsely confessed and they were convicted and sent to prison. Um, They have completed 311 post-conviction DNA exonerations in the U.S., which also includes 18 people who were sentenced to death before DNA evidence was able to prove their innocence. So they are really saving lives out here. So you probably have the same question that I do. Um, why would anyone do that? Why? Why do people falsely confess? Well, there's actually a quite there's a lengthy list of reasons why. Um, starting with duress, uh, coercion, intoxication, diminished capacity, mental impairment, um, ignorance of the law or their rights, fear of violence, the actual infliction of harm, the threat of a harsh sentence, and misunderstanding the situation. Now there are four types of false confessions. Instrumental coerced, instrumental voluntary, authentic coerced, and authentic voluntary. So instrument, instrumental coerced false confessions occur when a suspect, due to intense pressure, confesses to a crime they know they didn't commit. And this can come from a desire for interrogation to end or believe um, believing other evidence makes them look guilty, or they're looking to reduce the severity of their punishment. And then there's instrumental voluntary false confessions and this occurs when a suspect knowingly implicates themselves in a crime they know they did not commit to achieve a goal and this can be a result of protecting a higher up, protecting a loved one, and um, miscellaneous reasons. And then there's authentic coerced false confessions and this occurs when a suspect, after a prolonged invest- or interrogation, uh, comes to believe that they did commit the crime and confess. And some people are more susceptible to this type of confession than others. And this can be a result of you know, doubting their memories or they have uh, psychological problems, they develop false memories and uh, source monitoring issues. And then lastly, there's the authentic voluntary false confessions, and this occurs when a suspect suffers from delusions and truly believes that they committed the crime. And this can actually happen in a lot of high-profile cases. Um, People people get really weird when it comes to high-profile cases and kind of wanting attention sometimes or yeah, being delusional. So the other issue with this is that law enforcement just readily believes um, false confessions, even if there isn't evidence to support it or there's contradictory evidence. And this happens because of the fundamental attribution error, which is neglecting to consider situational influences on behavior. And there's been many times in um, interrogations where police officers have said, you know what? Nobody would say they did that unless they actually did it. That is part of the fundamental attribution error. So there are some risk factors for false confessions, um, personal and psychopathology. So the first being personal, which would come down to personality characteristics and intelligence. And then uh, the psychopathology side of that would be situational custody and isolation and process of confrontation, so the interrogation techniques that are used, and some of these interrogation techniques are, I want to say, barbaric and outdated, Uh, and they can actually increase vulnerability to false confessions. And one of these techniques is called the read technique, which is basically... It uses, like, psychological coercion and intimidation, like bullying someone into confessing, which is obviously not good when you're trying to avoid false confessions. And this technique is no longer used in the UK for good reason, but um, here in North America, yep, still you're still allowed to use it, and people, some people do. So other situational risk factors other than the read technique involve things like physical custody and isolation. So things like really uncomfortably tight handcuffs or sitting in isolation for long hours or days. And then the process of confrontation, like I said, um, the read technique and other just real shady and unprofessional forms of interrogation. So the reason that custody and isolation causes false confessions is because when you're isolated for long periods of time and you're uncomfortable because maybe you're in really tight handcuffs or whatever isolation increases anxiety and it increases the feeling of i need to get out of here also it usually involves fatigue and sleep deprivation which increases suggestibility and it impairs your decision-making skills or abilities i guess i should say So when you're stuck in isolation and there's the physical characteristics of the room, maybe it's just, you know, it's really hot or it's really cold or it smells or um, any any kind of physical uncomfortable attributes and then the pressure to submit to authority, it makes things highly stressful for people. So what are the consequences of false confessions? First of all, wrongful convictions. Then there's the fundamental attribution error. And then there's the fact that juries are actually usually uncritical of confessions. Basically, they think, you know, if they said they did it, then they did it. And then lastly, the, the I think probably one of the more important parts, the true perpetrator is walking around free, uh, and they're going to probably continue doing what they were doing. So how do police avoid having people give false confessions. First of all, avoid the read technique. And then greater reliance on corroborative evidence. So, you know, use your, use your brain. Um, put two and two together. Don't just take someone on their word because, you know, people will go down on the behalf of someone else. And there's all those things that I just talked about. There's also the time limits um, on interrogation. Don't keep somebody for hours, days, whatever. That feeling of being so uncomfortable and using those kind of psychological coercion techniques on people just to get answers out of them, it, it is not working in anybody's favor. Also, there should be legal counsel present at interrogation. It's also really important to identify um, vulnerable individuals, whether that is because of some mental capacity, um, whether that is disability of some kind, or a mental illness. Um, Also, youth would be vulnerable in situations like that. And everyone should have their rights explained to them. And explained well, not just like ramble it off to them and ask them do they understand, because most people are just going to be like, yes even if they maybe don't. And that's a big problem is that people don't understand their rights and so they get themselves into situations that are not good. So now we're going to switch gears towards false memories and we're going to talk about um, how memory works and it's not as simple as many people might assume. Our memory begins with our perception and attention to something and then we encode it to our short term memory, which can only hold memories temporarily, and then hopefully it gets encoded to our long term memory. And then last, but probably one of the most important parts of memory is retrieval. And that's being able to bring back a memory from the filing system that is your long term memory. And we can break this down a little bit more. So short term memory is encoded in auditory visual spatial and tactile forms tactile being what you feel so short-term memory is closely related to working memory which is like a cognitive system with a limited capacity that can hold information temporarily Um, working memory is important for reasoning and it guides your decision making information stored in short-term memory uh, continuously deteriorates which can lead to forgetting if you don't rehearse. So if you don't use it, you lose it. And this is why you cannot cram for a test and think you're going to be able to remember everything when the time comes to write a test. Memory does not work that way. And if you do well that way, you would have already had to convert that information into your long-term memory before the cram. The cram does not help you store things for longer than a few minutes and then be able to retrieve them later. One of the things that we do is called chunking, and it's the process of grouping pieces of information together into chunks. And this allows for the brain to collect more information at a given time by reducing it to more specific groups. So, with the process of chunking, the external environment is linked to the internal cognitive process of the brain, so that's the way that we think and process things. And so, due to the limited capacity of the working memory, or the short-term memory, this type of storage is necessary for memory to properly function. Rehearsal is a process where information is retained in short-term memory by conscious repetition of the word, phrase, or number, or the information that you're trying to remember. And if information has sufficient meaning to the person, or if it's repeated enough, it can be encoded into long-term memory. And there are two types of rehearsal, maintenance rehearsal and elaborate rehearsal. Maintenance rehearsal consists of constantly repeating the word or phrase um, in order to remember. Like remembering a phone number is one of the best examples. Maintenance rehearsal um, is mainly used for the short term ability to recall information. An elaborate rehearsal involves the association of old with new information and this is how you remember specific facts or definitions for exams or when learning new systems at work and so on repetition 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 equals memory (laughs) i remember looking at psych definitions until my eyes rolled out of my head there were hundreds of definitions per exam that i would have to memorize and i spent weeks memorizing them, but you know what? I can still remember a lot of them years later, so it clearly worked. So long-term memory, it refers to the ability to hold information for a prolonged period of time, and it's possibly the most complex component of the human memory system. The process of locating this information and bringing it back to working memory is called retrieval, like I kind of explained earlier, and this knowledge that is easily recalled is called explicit knowledge. When we talk about explicit memory, so that's things that we can easily retrieve or remember, um, aka memories that have been encoded into long-term memory, we see three main parts of the brain involved. And that's the hippocampus, the neocortex, and the amygdala. So the first part of this is the hippocampus, and that's located in the brain's temporal lobe, which is like the side of your head. It's where episodic memories are formed and filed for later access. Episodic memories are autobiographical memories, so events from your life, um, specific events like the drink you had with your friend last week. Then the next part is the neocortex and it is the largest part of the cerebral cortex and the cerebral cortex is like the wrinkly layer people usually think of when they imagine a brain. So The neocortex is involved in higher functions like sensory perception, general uh, motor commands, spatial reasoning, and language. Over time, information from certain memories that are temporarily stored in the hippocampus can be transferred to the neocortex um, as general knowledge, and researchers think this transfer happens when we sleep, and this is just another reason why sleep is so important. And then there is the amygdala. Oof, the amygdala. We have a love-hate relationship. It is an almond-shaped structure in the brain's temporal lobe, and it attaches emotional significance to memories. And this is particularly important because strong emotional memories, like those associated with shame, joy, love, or grief, are very difficult to forget. I'm sure everyone can think of a very difficult memory that they have, and you know that you're not going to forget that, even if you wish you could. So the permanence of these memories suggests that interactions between the amygdala, hippocampus, and neocortex are crucial in determining the stability of a memory. So like how effectively it's retained over time. But there's another piece um, of the amygdala's involvement in memory. It doesn't just modify the strength and emotional content of memory, it also plays a key role in forming new memories, specifically related to fear. Feel fearful memories are able to be formed only after a few repetitions, if not simply one impactful event. There's also implicit memory, but for the purpose of the episode, I won't go into details on that because that is more like muscle memory, conditioning, memories or procedural type memories, but explicit memory is more for recalling events, so more useful when talking about false memories or false confessions. To put it bluntly, eyewitness testimonies are crap for all the reasons that we've talked about so far. When people are stressed or things happen quickly, a lot of information is either missed or not encoded properly at all. And there's also something called memory conformity, and that's when what one witness reports influences what another witness reports. So this is why it's common for people to be interviewed separately as to not influence each other. So like I said, eyewitness accounts, not all the details of the event will be encoded. Um nor will all the information go into, or from short-term memory, move to long-term memory. Therefore, a lot of information needed um, is missing. And here's the thing. Your brain creates assumptions to fill the gaps, which makes memories inaccurate. Remember when I said spoiler alert at the beginning, and I said your memories are kind of a lie? Well, there it is. Your brain cannot possibly take in all information all at once and encode it properly and retrieve it properly so it fills in the gaps for you makes all kinds of assumptions to create this story and that's that's your memory so as you may have figured out by now memory is not like a video recording actually um our memory can change each time we retrieve the event and some parts of the event might be embellished or guessed at because we can't remember all the details and again, your brain is trying to make a complete thought and it will start filling in the gaps with all all kinds of inaccurate information. Another part of what makes memories so flawed, um, memories can be influenced and changed by subsequent events. For example, subsequent interviews or recalling the event in the way Questions are asked can influence what a person remembers, and this is where things like leading questions are a horrible thing. Suggestive or leading questions obviously influence responses, and researchers found that changing just one word in a question can lead to an increase in incorrect answers. So when officers are in training, they are trained very specifically on how to ask questions and how to get information from people without using leading words or questions. There are times when victims of a crime will honestly not remember accurately, and one of these situations is if a weapon is present. Witnesses will often focus on that, which, I mean, yeah, if someone sticks a gun in your face, you're definitely going to be paying more attention to that than maybe, you know, the color of shorts they're wearing. But this is called weapon focus. And so those people will have a less reliable memory for other aspects of the crime and other probably important details that I'm sure the police would love to know. But again, if someone sticks a gun in your face, like, it's, it's just expected. So what does help eyewitnesses recall correctly? So again, a lot of people might not be able to recall very much that they witness, probably because they're traumatized. But allegedly, some think that with the help of hypnosis, they may be able to recall a greater amount of information. And there's two different techniques that uh, hypnotherapists can use. One is age regression, so the witness goes back in time and re-experiences the original event and the other is the television technique. And with the television technique, the witness imagines that he or she or they are watching an imaginary television screen with the events being played as they were witnessed. And with further instructions, um, it's said that the witness's memory will improve over time and in future sessions um, once they um, are provided more tools to recall the event. However, as I'm sure some of you might be wondering or thinking, some researchers say that the information coming from hypnotized individuals can sometimes be just as inaccurate as someone who is fully conscious, so who really knows? Also, if the hypnotist is using the wrong techniques, like asking leading questions, people under hypnosis are much more susceptible to subtleties which could result in inaccurate information. And, Canadian courts don't accept evidence from hypnosis, so really, in a judicial setting, like, why bother? (laughs) So another technique that they use to get people to hopefully remember things more correctly is something called the cognitive interview. And this is better used with victims or witnesses rather than suspects. But it's based on five things. The first one being rapport building, when um, an officer, you know, should spend time building rapport with the witness and make them feel comfortable and supported. The next thing is supportive interviewer behavior. So a witness's free recall should not be interrupted, pauses should be waited out by the officer, and they should express attention to what the witness is saying. And then there's transfer of control. So the witness, not the officer, should control the flow of the interview. The witness is the expert. So the witness, not the officer, was the person who saw the crime. So they are treated like they are the ones that know exactly what they're talking about and what happened. And then there is focused retrieval, where questions should be open-ended and not leading or suggestive, suggestive as we have said a million times in this episode already. So the officer should be using focused memory techniques to facilitate retrieval, proper retrieval. And then the last part is witness-compatible questioning. So an officer's questions should match the witness's thinking. If the witness is talking about clothing, the officer should be asking about clothing and so on. So we know that eyewitness testimonies uh, can be not, not accurate, which can lead to number of different problems and a study was done in 2013 and they looked at witnesses descriptions of the murder of Anne lind who was a swedish foreign minister the researchers actually found that 42 percent of um, the participants described attributes that were incorrect and they were actually not great at describing even basic features like suspected age or height and more detailed features like clothing. So all in all, like perpetrator descriptions are really limited in quantity and accuracy, which in turn limits their usefulness to police in an investigation. So there are other techniques that uh, police use to try and identify suspects, and that is. Uh, One of them is lineups. So you bring in all the suspects, line them up and have a witness try to identify the perpetrator, if they're even there at all. Lineup identification allegedly reduces the uncertainty of whether a suspect is a perpetrator just beyond the verbal description provided. However, this is not very reliable in some cases either. There can be influences on the witness when presented with a lineup, and this is called biased lineups. And it suggests that um, the police suspect someone, and thereby uh, the witness is kind of indirectly pressured to identify that person. So, in some way, the suspect stands out from the other lineup members in a biased lineup. And a really good example of this is the case of Fillion Romero. So he did falsely confess to a murder that he did not commit. Why? Uh, According to his lawyer, he was struggling in many areas. And he said Fillion was, and I quote, weak, impulsive, and irrational with a history of coping poorly with emotional strain, end quote. Fillion... uh, believed that confessing would help him. So he was put in a lineup and the murdered man's wife picked Fillion out of the lineup and was like 150% sure that that was the man that had murdered her husband. Long story short, um, during the investigation, the wife did three more lineups that didn't have Fillion in them at all and she picked out someone every time and was so sure that she picked out the right man that killed her husband. And she was telling them that she was 100% positive. She ended up picking out four different suspects. And in the end, I mean, none of them were the man that killed her husband. Fillion was convicted and he spent 31 years in prison trying to convince the courts that he was innocent. It's a long story as to how he even ended up in jail, but it came down to really shitty police work, crap lineup techniques, and basically taking advantage of people. And it wasn't until 31 years later when a lawyer dug up some old file in Filion and found out that he was actually out of town the night of the murder, and this file proved that he was finally let out of prison. And of course, he went to sue the courts for keeping him in prison for 31 years. But unfortunately, he died shortly after, so he never got compensated. So according to psychologist Saul Kasson, false confessions are not a rare occurrence. You would think they are, but they're not. Approximately one quarter of individuals exonerated in the last decade had confessed in their alleged crime. And other researchers suggest that a self-made confession is thought to be the most powerful piece of evidence in a case. Even if the evidence doesn't line up with their confession, not only does false confessions and wrongful convictions hurt the accused, also deeply affects their families. In related research, it is said that as time passes after an event, the less specific detail we remember. So, as time passes, particular particularly after a traumatic event, the less accurately we remember very specific details like facial features. So we kind of touched on how police um, can kind of steer people uh, in the wrong direction when it comes to false confessions and stuff like that, but it also works um, for memories as well. There is a famous experiment that was carried out by Elizabeth Loftus in 1994 and it revealed that um, She was actually able to convince a quarter of her participants that they were once lost in a shopping center as a child. There was another study very similar in 2002 that found that half the participants were tricked into believing that they had taken a hot air balloon ride as a child simply by showing them a photoshopped picture of them as evidence. And So one researcher says that our memories are so malleable because there's simply too much information to take in. Our perceptual perceptual systems aren't built to notice absolutely everything in our environment. We have a lot of filters in our perception, so we take in information through all our senses, but there ends up being gaps. So when we remember an event, what our memory ultimately does Is again like I said fill in those gaps you make assumptions um, by thinking about what we what we know about the world again our memories aren't exactly what happened any way you slice it not to an exact T anyway memories that hold a lot of emotion especially fear can hold a lot of detail Um, but like again the smaller details will be forgotten or a little bit off And I plan on doing an episode on PTSD, and I will definitely go into a lot more detail about trauma and memories associated with trauma there. I just wanted to insert a quick note about fuzzy tracing. So fuzzy tracing is when you form a memory and we don't always focus on like the nitty gritty details and instead remember an overall impression of what happened. So fuzzy trace theory suggests that we sometimes make verbatim traces of events and other times we only take gist traces. So verbatim traces are based on the real events as they actually happened, while gist traces are centered on our, our own interpretation of events. So how does that explain false memories? sometimes how we interpret information does not accurately reflect what has happened like i've been saying and these um, biased interpretations of events can lead to false memories of the original events which very easy to understand at this point i feel like this also explains some of the mandela effects too even though i know some of them like you just i swear like i remember certain things to be a certain way like I don't know. I find Mandela effects really interesting. So it's pretty easy to not remember things correctly. And there have been studies done showing that it is possible to convince people that they did things that they didn't. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Or can you see how that could be used as an emotional weapon? Gaslighting anyone? For those who don't know, Gaslighting is a psychological manipulation tactic, and the term, um, it's used to describe a person who presents a false narrative to another group or person, which leads them to doubt their perceptions and become misled, disoriented, or distressed. Most people have heard about it in the last few years in terms of toxic relationships. There's six main ways to gaslight, but the one I will mention is called countering. And this describes a person questioning someone's memories. They might say things like, You never remember things accurately, or You're remembering wrong. Are you sure that happened? Or You have a bad memory. When really the person is accurately remembering, but their partner or whoever is just being manipulative. Okay, so I have a story. And the story I'm about to share isn't gaslighting, but it does show the power of false memories and how other people can influence other people's memories, and also has a lot to do with the issue with leading questions. It was the focus of a paper I did for a human information processing class, and it's based in Saskatchewan. How fun. In 1992 in Martinsville, uh, a bunch of young kids, like six to nine years old, came forward to Belize and said that their babysitter was forcing them to participate in a sort of sexual satanic worship. And they were very, very specific about the events, too. It wasn't vague. Like, they were saying things like, these people were cutting off children's nipples and eating them, being anally raped with an axe handle, drinking blood, and being forced to perform sexual acts with adults and other children. During this time in history, police and psychologists didn't know to what extent leading or suggestive questions had on anyone being interviewed, so these professionals also didn't know exactly how false memories were created, and oh, did that, did that ever feed the fire? These false accusations, uh, they began the longest trial in Saskatchewan history, and it resulted in approximately 180 charges laid against civilian and police officers in the community. In the early process of the case, the Martinsville police asked the parents to write down anything their kids told them about the events that happened at the babysitter's. Understandably, the parents were horrified that their children had gone through something so traumatic and they wanted answers. A female RCMP member had gone on record to state that they did tell the parents not to ask leading questions or what they considered to be leading questions at the time, but ultimately parents were not properly trained to do this. Inevitably, parents did ask their kids leading questions. And this is where things really went sideways. So again, in the early stages of the investigation, surprisingly, the children being interviewed recalled nothing happening to them at all. They just denied ever being hurt or coerced by their babysitter. Uh, Their last names were Sterling or anyone else in the town doing anything to them. They recanted everything. And this is where the first hitch in the investigation began. Police were feeling an immense sense of pressure from the community to figure out what happened to these poor kids and bring the people responsible to justice. And this in turn made the police put even more pressure on the kids and their parents to get answers out of them. The children were being bombarded with question after question, day after day, they were expected to give the police answers and they were rewarded positively when they did give answers anyone catching on yet? The kids were recanting and yet the police had so much pressure on them to figure this out that they basically forced answers of some kind from these kids and then positively reinforced the answers they gave. That's not a recipe for disaster at all. (laughs) The children soon learned that if they just told the police, social workers, psychologists, or their parents what they wanted to hear, They would get candy or be praised about how smart and brave they were or be able to leave the situation and go play. So the children in Martinsville did not start talking about certain things until the police asked them about it. For example, sex toys or um, when police showed them photos of the suspected church where these events had taken place, then the kids started talking about this building and what had happened inside of it. And then the police began showing the children photos of items inside the church. And this began the allegations of what occurred with those items inside. For example, there were cages in some of the photos and the children began to accuse the Sterlings of locking them in cages while they were naked. As this went through the courts, charges began to be dropped because of the lack of evidence. Uh, For example, there was a claim that they were cutting off children's nipples and eating them. But when police investigated this claim, all the children involved in the case still had two nipples and they were undamaged. And there was another allegation that fell through, um, and that was the testimony that children had been anally raped with the handle of an axe. Detectives working the case said that this was an impossibility because the victim would have had to undergo rectal reconstruction surgery in order to survive such an act, and none of these children underwent this operation. Something else that ended up being a big problem in this case was the familiarity bias. And it's described as seeing someone as more familiar familiar because something about them seems familiar to you. So it may not be that they were the person who committed the crime against whoever's looking at a lineup. um, But the victim may pick them out because of this bias. They see something in that person that is familiar to them that has nothing to do with the case. So because these kids knew the babysitter and the police officers working the case... When they were asked to identify who did these things, they pointed fingers at them. And actually, there was a child uh, in this case that when they were asked to pick out their perpetrator in a lineup, one child chose a man simply because he liked his tie. Overall, a vast majority of the accusations were false, except one. Travis Sterling, which is this son of the Sterlings, the babysitter, um, he had in fact molested one little girl at the Sterling home. And this girl had come forward to police before the satanic cult accusations even started. But unfortunately, I feel like this happens too often, her case was shoved to the back of a filing cabinet, it was dropped, and it was forgotten about. The only reason it was ever recovered and taken to court was because of the satanic ritual accusations made against the Sterlings. The only question I ended up not really having a solid answer for after writing my paper on this was how exactly the kids came up with such specific horrible situations. Like, yes, they were being fed leading questions and there was a ton of suggestion, but I'm wondering if the police flat out suggested some of these things and really led them to the awful things that came out or if some of these kids had been exposed to some not so nice things beforehand. Because like, those accusations are horrific and how would a child's mind come up with some of those things? So I'm wondering if the police planted that information or if some of those kids had experienced some awful shit themselves. Because it got there somehow. And I'm also wondering, even in the 90s, like how could a police officer not be more careful with the things they say to a witness, especially a child, like to the extent that that's what they come up with? But I guess the good thing is that that one little girl did get to prosecute the son of the babysitter who did rape her. And her file was only recovered because of the Satanic Panic case. If you are wanting more details or want to hear the story in full, you can go to cbc.ca slash listen and find their podcasts. And if you type in Satanic Panic, uh, Lisa Rundle narrates it, I believe. She's the reporter. Um, There's there's quite a few episodes, like it's an entire series and they go over everything in detail. Okay, so now I'm going to answer a question that someone sent me. Uh, I know the last couple episodes I haven't answered questions, so I'm going to get back to it. Remember, I will never name names on here, so you never have to worry about that. The question is, why does my therapist keep making me do rating skills every time I go? I don't feel like it's helpful and it's actually kind of annoying. So not everyone does that, but I can see why some might. So when you're working with someone new, you, well, some people want to get a feel of where they are, like where they're at. And sometimes it might be more helpful to give someone a few rating skills to do. Some clinicians might just keep doing it after the first initial visit just to kind of find a baseline or like see where you're at when you're starting therapy. And then they might only do this a few times in the beginning to maybe see what will work best for you personally in terms of treatment plans. For example, most clinicians would treat someone with like borderline personality disorder and generalized anxiety disorder differently. There could be crossover from different techniques, but very different approaches could be taken for each. And if you're doing quick little depression or anxiety rating scales each time you go in, I'm assuming it isn't taking up a lot of the session. And if it is, I'd be wondering why. But overall, though, I think It's just a way for your therapist to see how your thoughts or your moods are ebbing and flowing so they can help you more accurately during your session. Some therapists are not as, like, constructed during sessions. Um, Not everyone does this, but again, I can see why some use quick little scales to keep track of how things are going for you. If it really bothers you, um, I suggest just asking your therapist why they keep doing it or why they think that you need to keep doing it. Um or you can just simply say that you don't like doing them. You you won't hurt their feelings. Um I hope that kind of answered the question. Well, I think that's it for today. Be sure to follow the podcast on Instagram and watch for voting polls. That's Firefly Psychology on Instagram, all one word. Keep sending your questions in and I will try to answer them in the next few episodes. Alright.